never intended to really become political. But I thought, no, if, if no one else is going to stand up, I, I need to stand up. The reason we call collective hysteria collective hysteria is that it's a sickness at the network level, not at the individual level. You end up with a morally righteous new notions. You end up with outgroups who are deemed unclean and infectious. And there's often an evolution of an infectious metaphor for the outgroup. One of the worst things that you can do is have centralized censorship, which prevents that group thinking community from hearing any other voices. To break these sorts of things, you need to break them out of their group thinking. Welcome to the Staying Free podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Mark Changizi, who is a evolutionary biologist and theoretical cognitive scientist. I hope I've got that title right there. Many of you will know him because he's an outspoken libertarian and he's been one of the few people who's been an advocate for a rational response to COVID-19, or at least one of the few very prominent people and prominent scientists. We discuss all aspects of science behind the mass hysteria and we also go into some of his personal philosophy and his experiences of censorship as well. There really are so many avenues I could have taken this conversation with Mark because he's so knowledgeable in a lot of different areas, but there's only so much you can fit into one episode. This episode was ridden with technical errors, so we actually had to record this over at least three or four different parts, but I've stitched it all together and I hope that the conversation flows all right. If you enjoy the episode, then please give it a like if you're able to do that. And if you can share the episode on social media, then that would be hugely appreciated. And if you're enjoying the podcast so far, then please do give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast platform you're using and make sure you subscribe for future episodes. And finally, please consider supporting the podcast by giving a tip. You can do this in two ways. The first is to go to the Twitter page, Staying Free Pod, and give a Bitcoin tip using the link. And the second is to follow the link in the bio to buy me a coffee, where you can give a donation there too. All donations are hugely appreciated and will go directly towards paying the costs involved with making this podcast. All right, on to the episode. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to, to speak to you. Before we start drilling into uh, anything, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself and just give people a little bit of uh, background about how you kind of came to fame in this whole uh, freedom community? Yeah, I mean, as a background, I'm a, I'm a mathematician, uh, physics sort of undergrad, PhD was math, and, and I was really learning doing that kind of stuff so I could be a cognitive scientist, a sort of a theorist. I became a theorist in, in the areas of cognitive science and evolutionary biology. So I've, I've got a, a number of books on sort of why we evolved to be the way we are or why cultural evolution shaped writing or shaped language or shaped music or, um, such that it's designed for us. So a lot of design kinds of questions that get at, at um, why we're designed the way we are, why culture is designed for us and emergent phenomena. And uh, before COVID, I had started a Science Moment YouTube series on science, a short one minute to three minute kind of short little science videos that were mo mostly about areas of my research. And then when COVID hit, I stopped that series. I said, but I didn't know how to continue just talking about standard science fun stuff while the world was being turned upside down. I was pretty quiet. I'd say all things equal only had maybe 3000 followers on Twitter after a dozen years, despite, you know, promoting books. Um, I was mostly just interacting with science journalists, posting things about my research, and I was, I hadn't really posted, probably tweeted for six months, once a month kind of tweets. And I, I'm guessing half of my followers were bots because over, over 12 years, you accumulate a lot of bots. And then when COVID happened, 
March 10th was my first tweet. And I, I, and I was just immediately trying to calm folks down. It just looked like a collective hysteria. It was already beginning to sweep through. And I was just pointing out the actual infection fatality rate um, rather than what people seem to think it is, that there was, they had a 5 or 10, 20% chance of dying if they got it. Um, people were uh, mistakenly comparing case fatality rates to infection fatality rates, which were sometimes two orders of magnitude different. Um, it, you know, journalists were doing it in major articles, and in fact, even presented to the U.S. Congress or U.S. Senate, uh, they presented that kind of false data, which was on March 11th, I believe. So uh, this, and we already knew in early, uh, early, early, early March. Um, no matter whether you're looking at case fatality rate or, or, or infection fatality rate, it, the differences between children um, and adults is a, you know almost a 10,000 times difference in risk, and it's a, even steeper than it is for flu. So. For those who are very old, it's worse than your average flu, indeed. Um, for those who are young, younger than 40-ish, it starts to get a little safer than your average flu. And by the time you're your kids, it was maybe 10 times safer than your average flu. Hugely disproportionate changes as you get older, which means we knew exactly who to protect, the old and, and or immunocompromised. And most of these people were sitting in long-term care homes. Um, so uh, the idea that we should shut down everybody uh, everywhere and even supposing that worked, which uh, I was arguing since the beginning, no, that's, that's not even going to work. These are, uh, um, that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, so I just, I quickly realized that everybody, all the libertarians that I had kind of, the, the public intellectuals that were more on the libertarian side were all panicky. Um, those on the left were panicky. Those on the, all the, cons the conservatives were panicky. In the very beginning, I didn't know anybody that was had my viewpoint that this is this is clearly completely irrational. None of these things that the people are mentioning, namely lockdowns and shutdowns and uh, uh, essential workers and so forth, makes any sense. But I couldn't find anybody really who, who agreed with me. I did find a few communists. Actually, in the beginning, it, it wasn't very left-right. Tons of people on the right were bonkers. Libertarians were bonkers. The left was bonkers. And uh, there was communists, actually. So some of the first people on Twitter that I just stumbled into that agreed were communists. And communists... I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian. Communists, though, get, you can't freeze an economy. If you freeze an economy, whether it's top-down government controlled or not, you're going to mess everything up. And uh, so um, uh, it wasn't, I would say, until a couple months later that it more uh, uh, morphed into the uh, left, at least in the United States. And I'd say there's large correlations for this worldwide, but not universal. There were some counterexamples like Sweden, where it's mostly the right, which became super Karen. Um, anyway, but the left in the United States and a lot of the world then shifted towards the COVID authoritarianism view. And those on the right then shifted more towards the uh, a freedom oriented view in terms of, of COVID. But it wasn't originally that way. I, it became that way, I think, through through sort of group thinky kinds of societal effects like this, not because of any kind of rational argument per se. So it was it, it had all of this, this the hallmarks of of a, um, of a of a collective hysteria, which I hadn't really studied so much, but I've, I've certainly uh, done a lot of work that's related to group phenomena like that and how groups, emergent phenomena, things happen at the level of the whole that no one particularly per se designed. And so I, I, I felt like by early March, we were in a, in a collective hysteria and it just screamed out. Uh, it was so obvious. Um, so that's what launched me. So I, just, I quickly gained a lot of followers because I just said, like, I've got to stand up. All the people that I looked up to just to, to say something uh, uh, smart when the world is going crazy and you're engaging in the kinds of behaviors where suddenly people like we, me were deniers. We were unclean. 
uh, science journalists were denouncing me back in March and April. Uh, you're, you're a grandmother killer. We should create an app so that if people show up in, in bookstores and they see your book, the book, the, the app immediately says, don't buy his book. He's a denier, that kind of thing. You know, that, and they would be public. So um, I, I, I became more well known in politically for the first time. Uh, I never intended to really become political. I just thought it was just so much standard bullshit back and forth, left, right, all the time. It was like, but I thought, no, if, if no one else is going to stand up, I, I need to stand up. Okay, so on that point of the collective hysteria then, um, when you kind of talk about this being the case before that we've had these kind of collective hysterias, are you talking about periods in human history or is there something kind of more in the in the natural world or something more to do with your area of kind of um, evolutionary biology that can be observed maybe outside of humans, which kind of informs your views on collective hysteria? Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm sure that there... The, the the notions probably could extend to non-human social groups, but I, which I do think about a lot. But in this case, I really haven't thought too much about collective hysteria in um, in outside of humans. And I think largely it's because this is there's the kinds of cultural mimetic meme like dynamics are something that's due to the cultural species, which is us that has culture. And so we end up with a, a lot of these kinds of psycho societal effects that you just don't find really, except in some rudimentary sense in other social uh, species. So there's many examples from, I mean, we're, we're teeming with these sorts of things. So we have the, the large dangerous cases that everybody brings up like the Nazis and, uh, or the, the cultural revolution in, in China or the Islamic revolution in Iran and there's dozens and dozens of other kinds of cases like this where um, when there's democides, democides is just general death by government is the word democide refers to just governments that were, were involved and responsible for the deaths of many people. And genocide is just one kind of, 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 of democide. Um, so in some cases, it's targeted at particular uh, ethnicities, in which case it's genocide. But sometimes it's particulated, you know, it's, it's, it's um, directed at a, a class or it's directed at a religion. And these aren't genocides in the strict sense, but they're still democides. These things, when they happen, they're um, always come with a, a suite of very similar kinds of dynamics. You end up with a morally righteous new notions. You end up without groups who are deemed unclean and infectious, metaphorically infectious, but they're treated genuinely as infectious. Um, so that if you're friends with somebody in the out group, oh my God, you were dating somebody in that, in that those, those unclean, gross people or whatever it is, um, then you now are gross as well. Um, all of the, there's, there's hosts and hosts of, of things that are found the same in all of these things. And there's often an evolution of a, of a infectious metaphor for the outgroup. Now, in this case for COVID, there really was an infection there. Uh, so those people who were against fighting the infection were more likely to be, they were in the outgroup. And so they were more likely to be deemed as infectious because they're unvaccinated, they're not masking, they're not social distancing and so forth. But still, it co so you might think, oh, it's just because they are infectious. No, these infectious in infection metaphors are co-opted in, in all of these, these sorts of circumstances. And that's what makes it easier for people to say, oh, let's just put them into camps. Oh, let's just fire them or let's just banish them or let's just deny medical care at the hospital if they don't wear a mask or if they're not vaccinated. And I said that there's these, these are the big cases, right? These are the big cases of democides, but they happen all the time. So in little things that we don't often notice. So, you know, in, in my town, there's, there's just micro habitats of little cultures. Like there's the rich neighborhood of mostly white people 
in some part of our town. And the ladies there are all wearing Lululemons all day long. They, they never get into normal clothes. They just buy expensive Lululemons, that kind of style. And then there's other parts of town where it might be the African-American community and they're dressing up all the time. And there's the Persian community. I'm part of the Persian community. They always are dressing up too. It's more part of their culture just to, just to look nice. So let's just stick with the Persians. The Persians will look at the, the, the white uh, operative kind of crowds that you don't even care about what you look like during the day. Of course, they are caring what they look like. They just, within their community, they want to have, they have this particular notion of what they think looks good. It's like, I'm not even trying and I still look this good because look, my I'm, I'm butt is showing with Lulam. I don't know what they're, but what's going on, but but there's these different little subcultures. And if you think about it, people will often in each culture talk about the other ones in a negative way. Just they'll get clicky and they'll say, and they'll, act, they'll use unclean words. They'll call groups of people, oh, they're like whores. They're, they're just dressed up with long nails. They're just going to the store. Why do they dress like that, right? And then they'll start to have words like that are unclean and, and, and uh, words come out, even in these small settings where no one even gives a crap about each other. They don't even hate, they're, they're, they don't care enough about each other to do anything bad to them. But these things happen at these micro uninteresting cases that happen all around us. Um, people who like progressive music might feel that way about people who like hard, hardcore, you know, metal rap, rock or something like this. They kind of just look down upon them. And so these things pervade society and crisscross at small, uh, small little communities all the way to the largest communities. And the scary ones are when the entire community, it sweeps across. And when that happens, it's usually the case that the dictator that people will ultimately blame, um, and of course he or she does have all, you know, much of the blame, but it's usually much more bottom up than people realize. It's not just some dictator that walks in and hereby takes control. Usually when a dictator walks in and takes control, it's like in one of these African countries where this week, this coup happens and they install this particular dictator and he has no support from the people. The people barely even care who this, who this week's dictator is and not much changes in society. No one's really at risk because there is no uh, snitches on the corner saying, oh, oh, are you, you know, are you giving enough respect to, you know, this, the, the new leader this week? Because no one gives a crap. Those aren't the dangerous cases of dictatorship. The dangerous cases of dictatorships is when they, they're swept in on the backs of a morally righteous mob. Um, and that's what under what we exactly were seeing uh, since March of 2020. Wow. Okay. That was a, a really, really good um, explanation of everything that answered kind of a lot of questions that I was going to have for you actually. So let me know if I've got this, got this right based on what you were saying. It's, it's almost as if humans have a natural predisposition to kind of gathering in groups and to have a kind of in-group and an out-group. And most of the time it's benign, like the example that you, that you gave with, you know, different communities, uh, having different amounts of wealth and wearing different clothes, et cetera, thinking the others are, are dirty or unclean or, you know, t to a small degree, you know, not, not that they should be banished from society, but based upon everything that happened with COVID, it's almost like the whole, um, might of the state and this kind of propaganda machinery went into force and, it caused this natural instinct, this natural instinct to have an in and out group to just multiply massively and to kind of go exponential. And maybe this explains some of the, the things that we've seen in the past with kind of Nazi Germany and, and you know, uh, Maoist China, et cetera. Yeah. And, and the only, I, I don't think there's any difference. Uh, there's differences in the, in the icing, of course, in each of these different cases that we're imagining the, and this is yet another icing. Now it's discrimination or prejudice uh, towards those who are, insufficiently, you know, 
behind the safety or whatever you want to call the safety notions rather than being ethnicity or, or class or religion. But there is one qualitative difference here. Um, in this case, uh, because the world was all connected, it's the same old bullshit, but it, 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 it could cover the whole world. And so I think one of the scariest things, if you really were paying attention and you were sitting in the West, this should have been one of the most uh, informative and scary things that you've witnessed. Because I think, even though I didn't think this, I always argued these things can happen here, here being the United States, I would always say it could happen here. I really never imagined it would happen worldwide, but I always say they could happen here, but I didn't, part of me kept thinking, you know, that's what I would say because I thought they could, but really my gut kind of said, well, cross my fingers, luckily seems to never happen here. So maybe it will never happen. Here. I mean, I had experienced some small thing. So I'm half Iranian. My wife is from Iran. My dad is from Iran. And I'm, you know, in 1979, you're too young for this. But when the um, Iranian, uh, when the when the revolution happened and the Iranians took the 400 or whatever, uh, the, the many dozens of hostages and they kept them for 400 days, it became a, like a, a moral, uh, a, a collective hysteria in the United States as well. Uh, suddenly Persians, which no one, Iranians, Persians, they had no idea who the hell they even were. Iraq, Iran, all that part of the world was just just really a black box to, to Americans. Suddenly Iran was the epitome of evil. And so all of the Iranian rug stores everywhere, because it's sort of a stereotypical first job for the immigrants, suddenly switched all their names to Persian uh, rug stores because the average American didn't know that Persian was the same thing as Iranian. So that kind of protected them. But everywhere you went, um, there was this new notion of evil and it was constantly on the news for two years straight you know, ish, two four hundred days, almost you know, two and one and a half years straight during the crisis. But then it, that just kept that you know, that became a thing for a decade uh, and still lingering to this day. So I I was on the other side of that then as a kid, as an eleven year you know nine ten eleven year old, and sort of you could see it all around you. Just this suddenly overnight, this new notion of uh, who an evil person, unclean person was. So I think I, I got some just personal experience that in addition to my scientific background that helped me see it early. Um, now, I think ultimately the reason, and this gets gets at a, a related question, why did some people fall under the brainwashed, you know, effectively were brainwashed and be, fell into the collective hysteria and some people, some people didn't? And I think that's not because some people are smarter. I don't think it's some people are more educated. Some of the most educated, uh, bright people who should know about epidemiology and lockdowns uh, and masks uh, were, the, were the most brainwashed people. Academics seem to have been disproportionately brought into this. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's just where you sat within the network. If you sit, the reason that we all believe what we believe, I have 15 to 20 different sort of scientific discoveries that I'm proud of that I did. And during those discoveries, I did the data analysis and I have the p-values and so forth. And I can, I believe them because of science. All of the other four gazillion things that I believe is because other people told me stuff and I believe them. And I believed Doug who heard it from somebody and I have Doug has high reputation and Judy had read a study. So I believe Judy, it's people in my network that have high reputation that they've accumulated by virtue of many kinds of uh, interactions, expressive interactions with others. And in my community, I, I just start to believe them. So if I had sat in the typical academic community in that kind of echo chamber, I would be getting um, information from Doug and Judy and Wendy and, and my mom and all the other people in my, in my world, all telling me 
seem usually independent voices. I mean, they're not entirely independent, but there's some degree of probabilistic independence. And it's not like they're all coming, they're all uh, parroting each other. But in this case, it turns out they all are, are all parroting each other because it had become a kind of a, a virality that had been sweeping through. So what usually was probabilistically independent information. And so when they agreed, it actually meant something. Now it really doesn't mean anything, but I can't, I would, we don't modify our behavior in that way. We just hear these 12 different people or 1200 different people saying now the same thing, an extremely implausible thing if you're from the outside, but from when you're in, when you're on the inside and you're hearing them, you're like, well, that's a pretty damn good argument. They're all high reputation. And I'm hearing from all these different people. It's true. It's true that coronavirus is a disproportionately dangerous, altogether novel, you know, it has no natural immunity. There's no seasonality. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, you know, you can catch it all these different ways. Everything that we knew about respiratory viruses did not apply to this, even though it was called coronavirus 19, which should give give some kind of, you know, indication that it's not altogether novel. So the key is I happen to be aloof. Some people happen to be aloof, being socially aloof from those communities. And I've always, as a scientist for years, and I've written about it with to, to my students, I've always tried to remain aloof. And I meant that in, for scientific reasons, creativity reasons. Um, I, you know, when you show up to conferences, I always avoided going to conferences. I would go to conferences. I was invited and paid speaker like the keynote, but that's different from like mingling, going to that conference community for three days and then going to the next where the same, you know, the same kind of group, the next year, three or four times a year, you get to know everybody in the community. You, you know, like Doug and Judy are the older ones who are really, they're so super famous and I want to be like them. And then by the time you're thirties, you're like semi famous and these young people are like batting their eyes and the young men are like, oh, cool, there's Mark, you know? And so you love that. That's like the best thing in the universe because you're like now somebody and the, all the, the, all the ideas that exist that matter are the, are the ideas in that field. And the field that's over there, those people, they just do stupid bullshit. And over there, we have all like, it's like those maps of New York, the maps of the earth, but from the New York City's perspective, where like Manhattan stretches and covers almost all of the earth and the rest of the earth is sort of packed in the, in the edges, if you've ever seen it. So like New Yorkers think of the earth that way and people within conference communities think of their space of ideas in that way. And socially, they get completely wrapped up in it. And I'm a very social person. I knew I would as well. So I always avoided those sorts of things to keep myself aloof so I can move to a new field, move to a new field so that I can keep having good ideas as a theorist. And I think that's, uh, it wasn't really for political reasons per se, although I've always tried to remain aloof just because I didn't want to get involved in one side or the other. And I was a libertarian. Anyway, I think that's what saved me because if I had been in those communities, I'm just like everybody else, given the social network that I have and the people that are high reputation within it, I believe them just like everybody believes them. You know? And I think I would have been a super Karen, a powerful Karen I would have been. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you did actually touch on something just there that I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask you anyway, because you mentioned, um, earlier that you are a libertarian. I'm, I'm interested to know two things. First of all, whether you were a libertarian before this whole debacle happened. And second of all, if you were, do you think that that actually has informed your particular take on it? Or do you think that your response to everything that happened with COVID is more informed by your work as an evolutionary biologist? Because it, it kind of seems evident to me that some of the scientists, and there are very few who actually seem to have retained a kind of rational perspective on this. Um, they seem to be conservatives, you know, be people like yourself or um, Brett Weinstein would probably be another example. And I don't see... Um, any correlation necessarily between being a scientist, but I do see a correlation between being a conservative slash libertarian 
and um, believing that you know our, our response is wrong. So I'm, I'm interested to know, yeah, how, how you think that your own um, ideas are informed and whether you think that, that impacts it. Yeah, I mean, I've been libertarian ever since I was, you know, my late teens. Uh, it, once I sort of figured out the term, obviously, amongst libertarians, it ought to be the case that that those who are libertarian minded should be more likely to have ended up on the anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-interventions, uh, uh, anti-mandatory vaccinations side. That said, there were a tremendous number of, 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 of libertarians and libertarian sort of the, the, the group of libertarian kind of community online that totally were against my position here. In fact, I had some communists on my side, but libertarians against my side. And a lot of the conservatives, if you look just at the first month, it was a mess. There were conservative, just a lot of these conservative famous publications uh, had really become very Karen and had thrown civil liberties overboard because it was an emergency. Right. And so I think then th things shook out later. But I think that that shakeout to me has less to do with the principles that guide them and more to do with how these different kinds of communities, as they begin signaling, they end up with certain kind of virtue signals that things that they would say that would identify them as that. As, as a group, and then they start to defend those views, uh, and then things start to shift. It, there's sort of like a, a plate tectonics that happens over time due to these emergent phenomena. And I feel like it took two or three months before those plate, plate tectonics led to a different kind of dynamics, which was more I, on this two-dimensional space of, of political positions where you have um, left and right, sort of characteristically left and right with economic liberties and uh, uh, personal liberties. I don't know if you've seen this. It's the um, what you call diagram. Anyway, usually it's you can sort of imagine it's left, right, but really things had shifted. The left had gone down to the authoritarian position, and the right had. But that took two or so months. I'm not entirely convinced that it was for principled reasons that conservatives ended up over two or three months later in the vertical position. I feel like it was mostly for tribe tribal reasons, unfortunately, and uh, uh, because I saw so many counterexamples at the start. Uh, so for me, it was, it was, I'm, I have, uh, coming at it from two sides. One, I had the moral constraint the entire time that you can't, we can't coerce people, even if lockdowns worked, even if masks worked, um, uh, that you shouldn't be allowed to coerce people and you shouldn't be allowed to on the free expression side, um, uh, private companies, even despite being a libertarian, they're public accommodations, public accommodations should just especially if you're a public square, that is your, that's your thing. You should just let people speak unless they're promoting violence, you know, or something like this or involved in, you know, organized crime. That's what you should do. And not to mention that it's in fact, the federal government that's coordinating, uh, admittedly to them, they're, they're, they're telling us they're coordinating with social media. So, um, I had these firm, even if these things worked, look, that's fine that they work. Let's figure out smart ways of, of, um, you know, of, of, of creating ways that people are voluntarily going to do more of the kinds of behaviors that could slow spread. That's the kind of thing a smart public policy person ought to be constantly studying is how can we get the people to do these things voluntarily? Because uh, there are moral constraints on what you're allowed to do to people. Um, and then of course, too, was just the utilitarian question of are these things gonna work? And it would have been a lot more interesting philosophically if it turned out, okay, here's all these great utilitarian ideas, they would totally work, but we've got moral constraints because people have civil liberties. And it's the standard kind of issue about how you, it wasn't even that interesting because all of the utilitarian ideas didn't even work, even narrowly work. They didn't even slow spread and they only caused massive harm at various, you know, all these different kinds of levels. So it's like, 
like this is like not even an interesting standard kind of you know a classical kind of argument of utilitarianism versus libertarianism just on utilitarian grounds alone it completely fails yeah yeah i mean I, i've kind of mentioned this before but it's like if you are going to advocate that society should be shut down and everyone should you know have to take a, a vaccine and all these kind of things as far as i'm concerned that the first principle of that idea um if you just extrapolate that out um why not advocate for something like forced organ donation or something like forced blood donation? As far as I'm concerned, they're all exactly on the same spectrum. They're at different points on that spectrum, um, but they are still all on that spectrum to some degree. Because once you've said, um, you know, bodily autonomy, you know, doesn't matter and you don't have sovereignty over your, your own body, the state should get to inject you. Otherwise you have freedoms taken away. Why not then say everyone's got to donate blood or something? Because if you've got to donate blood, like we know that probably will save lives. There's always, you know, shortages of particular blood groups for, for blood donations. We know that would save lives, but I think that most people, most rational people would agree. Um, okay. Well, we shouldn't actually do that because even though it will save lives, we are kind of breaching a fundamental, um, human right, i.e. that of bodily autonomy. And I would say, well, um, when it comes to the vaccine, mandating the vaccine is exactly that same principle is, is being broken in, in that context. Um, you know, and really with any of these measures, um, you know, lockdowns, all these kind of things, they're all still breaching that first principle. And that's why when I, when I have discussions about, about this, when we're talking about, um, you know, lockdowns and, and, uh, you know, masks and whatever it is, my response, you know, I don't try to go into a discussion about the numbers because as far as I'm concerned, even if more people have, um, have died as a result, I still think it's wrong to lock down. I still think it's wrong to, um, forced vaccinations, et cetera. And that might sound callous, but then I would say the exact same thing for, for blood donations. I know more people will die if we don't mandate blood donations. If you don't have the state coming around knocking on everyone's door once a month saying you have to give blood, otherwise we take you to jail. I know that more people would survive in that scenario, but it's it's wrong. It's fundamentally wrong. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? And I think that a no, lot yeah, of people yeah. have been lost in the details and the kind of lost in the weeds on this, on this, um, on this kind of argument or this discussion and haven't actually kind of stepped back and said, what are our principles here? And that's what I think, you know, going back to what I was saying before, that's what I think libertarians are capable of doing because we think much more from first principles from, from that basis. And that I think has kind of somewhat inoculated us to, to you know, use a pun there um, from this kind of uh, mass hysteria. Yeah, I, it, it's a, if it, and I'm constantly struggling with the same issue that you're saying is like, I often would just say, look, we got to even just stop arguing the utilitarian side of these things. Start, just, that doesn't matter. The issue is even if they work, you're not allowed to do that shit. Stop. So, but it would almost be cleaner and easier to make that argument and make it nice and clean if they just worked, if the interventions worked. And say that. But the fact that they don't work, it's very hard to not start telling them that they don't work. Here's the, but once you start telling them that they don't work, then almost then you've entered their playing field right their playing field is they work or they don't work and if they work then we're totally allowed to do them right which is once you've entered that playing field, you kind of implicitly are assuming that were they to work you should be allowed to do them which is of course not what we think at all so there's not even any reason to be on that playing field so I, sometimes i hit myself why am i even entering these things but i think i think i think you somehow have to fight them on the more on the deontological side, deontological referring to just the firm constraint of what they're not allowed to do. And you have to fight them on the utilitarian side as well, um, because uh, they aren't libertarians. They aren't 
satisfied or convinced by that deontological constraint. And so as it happens, even in their own lights, in their own utilitarian lights, uh, their own ideas fail. So it is one way of arguing against them. And so it's hard to not use that, um, that angle, but yeah. 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 And, and I also think that, you know, something that is, that we're seeing on the left, the, the kind of opposite of that with where the left is trying to kind of justify their preexisting, um, ideas. Whereas from, from the, obviously I'm biased being a libertarian myself, but you know, we're kind of biased from a point of having first principles that we kind of live our lives by, et cetera. Whereas I think the left that they're, they're in many ways, the opposite of that. They, they, for instance, believe that, you know, we heard this thing a lot, like if it saves one life and things like this, you know, if it saves one life, then we should do it, et cetera. It, no matter the cost, no matter the economic cost, no matter the cost of civil liberties, et cetera. And it almost seems to me that this was a kind of a testing ground for, you know, the left. And obviously I'm being kind of somewhat, um, using kind of a broad brush here, but it's almost like I, I get the impression that if they advocated for saying we shouldn't lock down on it, you know, because it's going to, you know, we're going to throw people into poverty, for instance, or we shouldn't, um, you know, be uh, forcing, you know, vaccinations because uh, actually, you know, it, it's it's wrong on, on this level, that, that level. It, it kind of says that they don't believe it's, it's almost like you're implicitly saying, oh, I don't really believe in this collectivism that I've been advocating for so long. It's almost like I get the impression that on the left, it's like we have to advocate for collectivism the absolute collectivist um ideal no matter what no matter what's happening that that's the thing we advocate for and i, I think that there's probably a part on on some of these people who they're looking at this and going yeah it doesn't really make sense but if i say we shouldn't lock down for economic reasons for instance then i'm advocating that the economy is more important than lives or, or something something like that and um yeah i think that they've had to kind of protect or defend their worldview and rather than being rational and honest about the situation, they've kind of advocated for something which is in line with their pre-existing worldview rather than adapting it um, and, and being more honest about the situation. Do, do you see what I'm saying? I, I don't know whether that's impre an impression you, you've got as well or, or an observation you've made. Yeah, I, 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 I think something along those lines probably would explain why there's certainly a stronger correlation for the left worldwide to have fallen to the pro-COVID sort of side. We do find counterexamples. I mean, uh, you know, in, in Israel, it's, it was the leaders on the right who seemed to be, I don't know in detail their politics there, but, you know, it's the leaders on the right that were really deeply caring and pushing these, in, these interventions. And, and in Sweden, um, it's, it was the left that was pushing, uh, not doing the lockdowns. They were the ones that were holding the line on holding civil liberties and not moving forward. And, the, and, uh, and the Jacobian, you know, it was Martin Kulldorff, I believe, that wrote in the Jacobian back in late 2020, arguing that, look, this is not really a worldwide left-right thing in our country. It's the left that's on the side of... True. Because, you know, so, I mean, you can tell, you can tell I, I don't think I can tell as good of a story as what you just did, and I, I share your opinion, but you can sort of tell, like, for example, amongst the stereotypical right, which I don't think characterizes many people on the right anymore... Um, the idea, the stereotype of the right is that they're pro-economic freedom, but less pro-personal freedom. So they're more likely to put your hand in their hands, or the government hands, in the realm of personal behaviors. And uh, I, so, for example, pro-life would be one case where they are, in some sense, like the zero-COVID crowd. That even if it's a zygote, it trumps uh, the rights of the mother. Um, whether and so they're just very black and white about it. So you could imagine some people um, 
on there having said, well, I'm going to uh, to argue that we should also be zero COVID because saving any lives, oh, you know, they could have just used that as a kind of justification because right now it's a it's a weird tension to say that people should have bodily autonomy. I'm arguing for bodily autonomy, bodily autonomy, but then still trying to hold a pro-life position where you're not really recognizing bodily autonomy at any stage uh, for the mother. So uh, I think we could have told stories if the right had fallen into the super caring position. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a tough one. Um, the, the whole the whole pro-life, uh, pro-choice thing. Um, where, where do you stand on that? I'm, I'm interested to know. I, I To this day, I've... I never understand. Uh, there was, I just saw a video that sort of summarizes that the guy was asking three women walking by and they, and he asked them, Hey, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And they go, we're pro-choice. And, and, and then they go, okay, okay, well, what, where, where do you think the line should be in terms of where, you know, when you're allowed or not allowed? And the ladies were like, I don't know, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 11 weeks, something like this. They all threw out numbers like this. And he goes, Oh, actually I call myself pro-life. And for me, the line has always been 20 weeks. <laughs> in other words, he was an, he considers himself pro-life, but in fact, his line was much more flexible that he's been walking around with than these three women who consider themselves pro-choice. But their intuitive line for where the government should step in was actually earlier and more severe. Um, so you, you end up with a lot of these people saying what they are on the basis of the team that they're already part of. And the average person has somewhat similar views very few people believe that an 8.5, truly believe that an 8.5 month old fetus is totally not a baby and it's totally okay uh, for bodily autonomy for the, for the mother to abort it. There's very few people there. There's just some, there's some extremists that have that, but not real pro-choice people. And then there's, uh, there, there, there's certainly a, a lot of uh, pro-life people that believe that a zygote is a baby totally 100% like an 8.5 month fetus and it should totally be protected and we should actually seek but there's very few people that say we should seek out like constantly test for like one day old pregnancies so that we can we can you know shackle these women and make sure that they bring them to term and are, are you know are punished that kind of severity where they that there's very few people who would have that view as well most regular people whether they call themselves pro life or pro choice are somewhere in the eight weeks to twenty weeks realm as to when when the growing life um, is then sufficiently uh, along such that it begins to weigh enough against the woman's bodily autonomy and where the hell that is, nobody knows. And it takes a really powerful theory to come up with um, where that would be and how that should trade off. And none of us are smart enough to know where that is. So it's just going to be in a, a fuzzy region. So I, you know, I'm not pro-life or pro-choice. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. And I'd love to be able to say that as a theorist, I can build a, this theory that would give me some better traction but at the end of the day, I'm sure that whatever theory that I could come up with, even if it was brilliant, would still end up with all of these uncertain you know, parameters that are we don't really know how to set exactly. And it would still end up being probably pretty much as gray and, and uncertain as what it, what we're all dealing with now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. I think I think I'm probably in a, in a similar boat. I, I find that I'm 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 people who are who are kind of pro life think that I'm you know, like evil for not being like absolutist on it. And then people who are, who are pro-choice think that I'm, I'm way too kind of in line with the, the, the religious fundamentals, but I'm similar to you. Like, I think, I think that ultimately for me, it's kind of based upon sentience, like how, how much sentience um, does a, a fetus have? And I think at the point, and I know that this is kind of the ultimate question is when does sentience ultimately emerge? But for me, 
if we can come to some kind of conclusion and maybe everyone has a different opinion on it at least for now but i think that to me seems like the most logical thing to to base it on rather than you know the point of conception and 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 certainly not you know the point at which someone is is ready to birth a child which there are actually people on left who who have that opinion i was actually just having a, a argument the other day um with a guy called gary francione i don't know if you've if you've heard of this guy but he's um He's really big in the vegan community, and you know I, I used to have a lot of respect for him. But um, I, his opinion is that you should be able to have an abortion up until any point in the pregnancy, which I just think is absolutely crazy for someone who is an ethical vegan and believes in you know uh, protecting life. So I, I had a, a huge argument with him, and it, it seems to me that some people, like, you know, once again, they're not acting based upon fundamental first principles. Um, they are actually part of a, a group, and for him, because he's kind of really big into a lot of this kind of radical leftist ideas he has to advocate for that view even though it kind of contradicts all of his other work and all of his other other ideas so um yeah um anyway just just a side point but moving and, I back, it, and i don't think it's yes yeah, sorry sorry go ahead what i and i don't think he's i don't think he's thinking to himself oh if i don't hold this position then it contradicts my views i mean it that could still be a driver but it's not that he's consciously thinking that through a lot of times these absurd um, virtue positions uh, are selected, evolve, uh, culturally evolve to be absurd because uh, what will dis what works as a membership signal within a community, if wearing a hat uh, in its, you know, I live in Miami and we're some communities there. And if wearing a hat, you know, shady kind of hat were the signal for our community, it wouldn't work because everybody's wearing hats because it's hot outside and we all want to wear shady you know, hats that help shade us. What works as a signal in terms in term also a position, the kind of things that you utter to show that you're a member are the things that no one else would say because they're kind of crazy. They're kind of really out there. And so those will, those will be the sentences or the, the positions that are selected for over time because if you start saying stuff that other people start saying, they'll be selected against. They don't work as, as membership signals. The ones that work as membership signals are the extreme statements. And then once then the community will evolve over time. People will come up with reasons for why those absurd, crazier things are true. And the people with better arguments that justify them, it's like, yeah, actually that is true because, and they'll come up with some kind of narrative that defends it. That provides a stronger base for that. And that gets further, that will be encouraged over time to get more and more stories that defend the absurd position. Um, because it, so it sort of self-reinforces and it, and the other community will do the opposite. So they'll end up with the opposite absurd positions because that helps uh, further separate themselves from their opponents. So these things are selected for. Absurd uh, uh, positions are there on purpose in some sense, not in anybody's head, but as a result of the evolutionary dynamics. Wow, that was a really, really great explanation. So yeah, that's definitely kind of uh, expanded my um, thinking about the issue. Just going back uh, again then to, um, to the COVID stuff. I'm just going to kind of uh, rapid fire a couple of things to, to get your thoughts on them because, you know, I, I have heard you articulate in a couple of other interviews your thoughts on them and I, and I think that you did a really, really good job. So um, first of all is the the PCR testing. Um, what's going on there? And, you know, should we should we be trusting PCR as, as a method of testing at all? What, what do you what do you think um, around that issue? I can only parrot back uh, things that I've read about others, uh, anything virology and PCR kind of tests is not my bag at all. So, uh, you know, I know the same things that you do in that, but I don't have anything really special to say. Um, we know that they were 
you know, pulled down as of late 2021 in the United States, there was lawsuits that then required that they, the government pulled them down as a test that can be done because they weren't in fact um, diagnostic of whether you really had COVID uh, at those number of repetitions of the test and so forth. Um, but, but yeah, I don't have any, any deep insights there. Okay. Um, this one probably might be a little bit out of your area as well, but, um, do you think that the, the virus could have, could have come from, uh, the, the lab in, in Wuhan or do you, I, I guess maybe, maybe it's not entirely out of your area because, um, you might have some insight as to whether it is likely or reasonable for this virus to have kind of come from, from bats. Do you have any, um, insight around that? Uh, in terms of whether bats, uh, I certainly know. I mean, up until recently, I had been thinking that clearly the, the most plausible hypothesis that came, came from a lab uh, in Wuhan, uh, that was under the assumption that, that there really was some argument that the earliest cases were found in the Wuhan area. Since then, over the last couple of months, I've read art articles saying that like, now there's evidence that goes back long before the supposed first cases in Wuhan. We have evidence of it being already worldwide hither and thither way before those supposed first cases. And if that's the case, then um, the fact that people measured in Wuhan that happened to be next to, to every, this was already spread way before then. So in which case then that makes Wuhan much less interesting. There's nothing special about Wuhan at all. Uh, in which case it could have just been organic, uh, just, just happened to be spreading over time from 2018 or so. And later people happened to first measure in Wuhan. Maybe they started measuring there because they were worried about the lab being nearby, but it's not having any causal. So, so I, but so at this point, I just don't know. Okay. Okay, great. And um, masks, I'm interested to get your take on, on masks kind of just as a phenomenon generally, because for me personally, um, aside from, uh, they, they feel like a strange kind of, um, just something you would see in, in history in, in the history books and, and, and think, you know, how, how crazy is that? It reminds me almost a little bit of, you know, where during, during the, the great plague where you see people wearing, wearing these kind of weird beak like things and I think they called them quacks and they, they had like a bunch of herbs and spices in them. And I think that history will view masks in the same way. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this is one reason I, I was focusing on virtue positions a minute ago, because it, it comes up for, uh, all of these issues uh, in COVID as well. So you might ask yourself, uh, how is it that in March and prior to March in April and even May, um, the science told us that masks uh, definitely don't work and there's no reason to wear them. Uh, historically, surgeons never ever wore masks to slow respiratory viruses. They were only worn to stop spittle, which is always bacterial ridden and to stop goop from the you know open wound from getting in your nose or mouth. They were never to stop uh, uh, viruses. When doctors would meet with their patients before the surgery, they would never wear their masks. Um, it, it wasn't, it's not about protecting others from respiratory viruses at all. So suddenly then by May or June, suddenly it became that masks really work. So this, this, this kind of, the way that this dynamics works is that there were a small number of people who were more on the COVID cult side in May and April, maybe even back, who would start to wear a mask. And that provided a very strong signal that I'm a member of the we, you know, the safety community, right? And it wasn't very well widespread, but that was a, a, a that was a good virtue signal, good in the sense that it really distinguishes you from your opponents. Because those who thought this was not a disproportionately dangerous virus, blah, 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 us, um, would never wear a mask. 
So that then serves as a good membership signal. And once it starts to serve as a membership, it gets reinforced, membership signal gets reinforced. More people start to wear it because it shows membership. But membership signals never just stay membership signals. Then the community wants to justify, come up with a justification for why this membership signal isn't of, of our virtuous community, isn't just a membership signal, but itself is virtuous. It itself wearing the thing. This is like ladies who are wearing Lululemon, they don't just wear that. They say, actually, it's good that we wear, and there's magazine art, you know, thousands of women's magazines. It's actually good. It's healthy for your body because it lets your legs breathe because it's designed to let your legs breathe and you can move more freely and your day is better. But they come up with all of these kinds of post hoc stories to justify why the things that they arbitrarily do because of the movements of their community and the membership signals of their community, they come up with post hoc justifications after the fact. And you and I do the same individually at the individual levels. Our brains are networks of, of 100 billion neurons, and we only have access to, you know, 0.0001% of what the hell's going on in there. So we do amazingly complex calculations, and after the fact, we come up with post hoc explanations for what the heck we're doing, which usually have no truth at all. So a standard example that I give is I present to you two pictures of people, two ladies, let's say, which one's more attractive and you pick, you go, okay, this one. And then I go through, let's say 50 of these pairs and you pick which one's more attractive. And so, and then afterwards, okay, okay, that's great. Here, remember when I showed you these two pictures, you said this one was more attractive. I want you to write down reasons for why you thought this one was more attractive. Secretly, you didn't, you thought the other one was more attractive. I'm lying to you now, right? You'll actually write down all of these reasons for why the one you did not think was more attractive is more attractive. You come up with a little bullshit story, making it up after the fact. Communities do this as well. So now the community is being rewarded. So when someone in the, in the, in the, in the Karen COVID cult community comes up with reasons and they do some mannequin study or they're making these kinds of arguments or Swiss cheese bullshit, they get rewarded with, with, with uh, reputation for doing that. And then that spreads and more justification and more narrative is added on top of them. That's because, that, so there's this long standard story that people say, well, oh, it's totally true because of A, B, C, D, and E, because people in our community who have high reputation have all said these things. So it's no longer just a membership signal. It's actually true, tr truly virtuous in itself. And this is all a post hoc internal explanation, community internal explanation of this thing that happened for no good reason other than membership signal kinds of reasons. And this happens all over the place in all of these sorts of groups. So that's what happened with masks um, and why they still to this day think that they totally work despite them not thinking that they worked at all just a few months before that started. And this is just one example of, of, of gazillions that happen all the time. So, I mean, we haven't really gotten into masks. It's more of the, the, the large dynamics of, you know, one of the first, actually the, the very first video, and I, I think we got cut off earlier. I've got a science moment series on, on YouTube talking about just aspects of science of my own research areas. And I was around episode 50 or so prior to COVID hitting. And then once COVID hit, I stopped the series. I said, I can't just keep talking about just sort of science, normal science, when the world is being turned upside down. It would be like these artists who kept doing the same kind of art pre-World War II and then during World War II, like in, like, you know, imagine they're living in Europe and they're just still doing the same kind of art. No, art, artists change what they're doing when the world is. So I just sat for six months and I was very active on social media, trying to calm people to F down. And I, but I finally clicked. I said, oh, I can actually, I can continue the series because there's so much interesting cognitive, psychological, societal 
stuff going on. And this is actually the most interesting stuff that's, that's, that's happening in the world. And we're all watching it in real time. Every time you see someone in their car with a mask on, there's a book that needs to be written to understand this kind of phenomenon. There's deep stuff going on all around us. This is this is should be blowing our minds. So I restarted the series on around episode 50, and it's all been sort of COVID related since then. I'm on 200 science moment 227 now. So a, a lot of these arguments, a lot of these episodes are really about exactly these kinds of psycho societal dynamics and how societies move over time and how the reputation networks within them work, why free expression is so important in these networks uh, so that they can slowly troggle their way towards the truth rather than being forever uh, and irrev irrevocably handicapped as they are if you have uh, uh, censorship and so forth. Great. Um, how are you doing for time, by the way? Are you okay for another, say, 20 minutes? Yeah, I'm good for another 20 minutes, yeah. Okay, cool. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep it to that. So, um, yeah, just, just piggybacking on what, you're, what you were saying there. It kind of reminds me of that... Um, that test that you get where um, you get a bunch of people in a room and you say, which line is longer? And, you know, there's, there's like five, five people and four of them are kind of in on the experiment and they're giving the wrong answer. And then it gets the fifth one and they start by giving yeah, the correct answer. Yeah. And then eventually they switch. And I, I always wonder in those experiments, does that person actually see it differently? Like, do they actually see that the line is, is incorrectly because their, their brain is literally giving them information to say, it's more important that you agree with the group right now than that you um, actually see the lines as they are or whether that person is literally just lying to fit in the group. So that, that's one of my kind of thoughts about that experiment. And the other is I have a theory that the people who really saw the COVID kind of um, hysteria for what it was, a hysteria, would pass that experiment. As in like, let's say, I don't know what it is, but let's say 10 or 20% of people would pass the experiment and, and the others would all, would all fail it. My theory is that people like yourself and me and probably a lot of people listening to this would be in the the twenty percent who would actually pass, not in the eighty percent that fail. Wonder what you think about that. Maybe so. The, the counter thought is, I don't know. I mean, one of my discoveries concerns why we see illusions generally, but the, this this social kind of illusion that you're talking about is I don't actually know that experiment very well. I have seen it, and I wish there there's there surely is an answer to your question, or at least a, a, or, or some considerable discussion within the literature on it, and I can't. I suspect that many of them really do come to believe that they perceive it the way the others are lying yeah, to them. Uh, uh, and I, my worry would be that I claim to have been aloof when COVID hit um, because I actually was not well embedded within certain kinds of social networks where these avalanches swept through. But in this experiment that you're describing, I would have been just as unaloof as you would have been in the experiment, as everybody would have been in the experiment, because there was a, a, it's all set up the same with a bunch of strangers, I presume, or whatever. So I'm presuming I would be equal. I mean, now I'm not equally susceptible because I'm, you know, I'm a, a cognitive scientist. I've seen all these kinds of experiments. So I wouldn't be very susceptible. But were it not for that, I'm worried I, I would have been no different, probably on average, um, because the my aloofness outside of that lab doesn't help me when it's the same, you know, we've set up an artificial situation where I'm just as unaloof as everybody else in the experiment. Oh, okay. That's, that's very humble of you. I guess I, uh, I, I probably would suffer from the same, but I, I like to believe I wouldn't. Yeah. I'd like to believe I try to be honest. With you. <laughs> oh, one thing I, I'm sorry. I got, I lost my way. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to just completely go in, in chaotic directions, but the reason I brought up the science moment series was that, and I, the first science moment that I did, once I got restarted after COVID was something I've seen so few people talk about. And it was the obvious one to me, which is that when you wear a mask, you cover 
your lower visual field. This is, of course, you're covering your nose and your mouth and your speech and your facial expressions, all the other things that are a little bit more obvious, which I've seen to be to not matter to those in the COVID call. But you're actually blocking your vision. And that's it's a little bit counterintuitive that you are. But one way, you know, if you ask yourself, why do American football players uh, wear black, uh, put black paint or whatever underneath their eyes? They put black paint underneath their eyes so that they end up with less reflection from the sun off of their skin into their eyes. But if light is reflecting directly from your cheek into your eye, it means that you see your own cheek, right? You see, in fact, this I'm, I'm saying all the time when you're walking, you see your nose. If you close one eye, you're often wiggle your nose. You kind of probably notice that you see your nose, but 99.999% of the time, you're not consciously aware of your nose. Well, the same thing is actually true for the, for the, the actual end of your visual field on the bottom includes your cheeks. It often includes uh, parts of your feet as you move forward. It includes the ground as it approaches your feet. If you actually put on a mask, any of the crappy masks that you wear, and you actually look at the first part of your visual field that you can then see, if you start to point, you'll realize that instead of pointing almost straight down, um, it's now considerably uh, constrained up high. So you're missing all of this optic flow that happens in your lower visual field, through, which is what we use to navigate and to spatially navigate and to be amazing you know, acrobatic creatures that we are. Um, so falls, are a very dangerous thing. Every year there's several million falls worldwide. We've got 600,000 deaths every year from falls alone. Uh, so how many extra falls are there on the basis of this? No one ever measures. You know, when Biden was going up the steps to, this, to the airplane six months ago, wherever it was, and fell two or three times, yeah, he's older in his age, you know, he's not exactly fit anymore, but you can be sure that having the mask there is making it much harder. And uh, so, there, this is just one important injurious uh, uh, side effect amongst dozens and dozens of side effects that I've been railing on about uh, about masks. And for some reason, none of these seem to matter, um, even if masks work, which they obviously do not work. They can't work. Uh, they never have been used to, to, to do this. And we can even explain why they believe the, the, the stuff that they do, you know, um, psychosocietally, I can understand this. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a great microcosm of craziness, the masks. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. So another thing I wanted to wanted to ask you about is the um, the censorship that you've experienced. I know that I can't search you on Twitter. Um, nothing comes up. You've obviously got some kind of um, ghost ban there or whatever you call it. Um, I'm interested to know kind of what's going on because I know that you're you've got a lawsuit going on, which is something to do with um, censorship. So um, yeah, what are, the, what are the details of that? Yeah, I mean, so in 2021, I was temporarily suspended for whatever, 12 hours, and then another time for seven days, and then another time just permanently suspended. I appealed that, and all of these were for, for publishing, for posting published papers that were even on, even on NIH servers, you know? So then I appealed and I got back in at the end of, uh, of 2021. But for the lawsuit, so we, with uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, with Michael Sanger and Daniel Kotzen and I, uh, are suing the federal government, not suing Twitter, on the, for First Amendment violations, because the, the government just has been announcing since April of 2021, hey, we're working with social media and Twitter and Facebook to make sure that the misinformers, uh, their posts are striked and they should be kicked off. And if they're kicked off from one, they should be blacklisted across all of them. 
what I just said is almost verbatim what the, the, the Biden administration is actually saying. Um, and actually, as they began that whole thing in April and May, uh, my impressions and my number of new subscribers at YouTube, my impressions at Twitter and the number of uh, new, new uh, subscribers at YouTube were rising and rising and rising and rising and right, rising all this all the way up until there. And then suddenly um, something I didn't even notice back in July or May or July when it started the fall, but they were falling and falling. And somewhere around November, I said, I'm just not getting any impressions anymore like I used to at Twitter. I'm not growing anymore. Uh, I'm not getting any new subscribers at YouTube or just coming in little trickles. And then I could just then I just went back and I said, what's the new number of impressions per month starting from, you know, January of 2020? And you just see it go up and then suddenly all falls back down towards zero again. And the number of new subscribers rising, rising, rising at YouTube and then all falling back. So I basically stopped rising in both places. Yeah. So many people, I'd say 30 percent of the people what you can't if they try to find me at all, I don't come up. If you type in my full name, eventually uh, one of my old accounts, like a backup account might show. And then at the bottom says, would you like to see more results? And you click here, then it shows my page and it says, are you sure? Because this is sensitive, totally sensitive material. And then once you're there, a lot of people just, each of my tweets just says, this is sensitive material. Uh, you can't see this unless you change your settings. And some people can never figure out how to change your settings uh, to see it. So yeah, for more than a year now, I've been um, massively uh, uh, de-boosted at YouTube at uh, Instagram as well, Facebook, uh, and and uh, and especially Twitter. And so, yeah, we're involved in a lawsuit and uh, FOIA requests um, uh, uh, for all of these things that is uh, ongoing. Right. Okay. So, yeah, I um, I wish the best of luck with that lawsuit. Michael Singer, he's a he's a um, lawyer, is he? Yes. Ah. Okay. So you've uh, <laughs> you've got the right guy on your team, anyway. Well, and Daniel Hudson is also a lawyer. Ah. Great. <laughs> great. Hopefully that will, that will pan out for you. So just moving on to a couple of questions from the listeners. I know that you you know that uh, one or two of these are, are coming and um, it's probably not going to be in your area. It's probably better to, to ask viral, virologists, but I'll fire them at you and then you know we'll just maybe do a quick little rapid fire on these questions and uh, let me know your take on all of them. So Liam Vassi, Vassi he says, uh, why can't they isolate viruses using Koch's postulates? So I guess this is uh, speaking to the whole germ theory versus um, body toxicity stuff. Do you have any any take on that? No, yeah, that's out of my my Bailey wax or whatever the word is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, the, I am looking to get someone on to, to talk specifically about that, so uh, I'll do that another time. Uh, Satirical Truth says... How does he interpret the statement from the late Dr. Luke Montagne that the unvaccinated will save humanity and that the vaccines are causing the variants? What was the last part of the unvaccinated? And that the vaccines are causing the, the variants. So I guess this is something to do with kind of immune escape and stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not an expert on this. I've been, I follow this very closely uh, and, and, uh, in a number of uh, great substacks, including uh, uh, Bad Gato. There's a lot of great places, but I, this has not really been my my thing. I, I felt there's been a lot of really bright uh, data, uh, smart scientists that have been keeping their eyes on this, and so I've been trying to focus more on where my expertise is in my, which is more the psycho societal level stuff, which is ultimately, I think, really what underlies all of the what's going on. You know, this this isn't really about a pandemic; it's about a mass hysteria and how we need to fight it. And how we need to learn from it in the future. Okay, so the final question, and this one is probably going to be a bit more in your area of expertise. This one's from Mighty Sprite. 
Is it possible for people who have fallen for the COVID propaganda to see truth or are they lost forever? This is part of what I would say the trillion dollar question. The trillion dollar question being how do societies uh, protect themselves from these kinds of collective hysterias or uh, cure themselves from these kinds of collective hysterias or inhibit these sorts of collective hysterias. And this is all wrapped up as part of that. You know, one way that they can definitely be lost forever is to have uh, the censorship, top-down censorship, uh, centralized censorship that we've been having. The way that you break through to any community, any anyone who's involved in a, in a kind of hysteria is you have to have the voices from the outside breaking through and a world where there's such intolerance and centralized censorship is one where that potentially can never happen. Now, this is what uh, in early 2021, uh, Dr. Tim Barber and I started a research institute called the Free Expression Group, which is devoted to understanding these kinds of psychosocietal phenomena, how uh, free expression works, uh, how, um, these reputation networks work, how uh, cascades or, or virality can occur through them, how they can be potentially stopped. Trying to understand the, the math and psychology and emergent phenomena that really governs both free expression, uh, the move towards truth, and how when it breaks, you end up with these kinds of collective hysterias which cause all of the great democides and genocides. This doesn't just happen at the scales like we're dealing with now. Even communities like eating disorder communities Second world and third world countries don't have eating disorders like we do, like anorexia. And so there's there's voices within this community that I know because I have some family members that had these sorts of issues. These communities themselves are kind of like little micro, little collective hysterias. They get to know each other online, they follow, and then they all get their own notion of righteousness, which concerns how you eat and how barely you eat and how other people are not doing it properly. And then it, it, they end up in a, a kind of like their own little virtuous notions of this, right? And the way that they try to solve this, the actual medical advice is to actually send these people away from their homes and all put them together in a group, which is the worst thing that you can possibly do because although they do, now they're members of the group and now they're all competitively signaling and trying to be the best at what they do, namely anorexia or bulimia or whatever the bullshit. And I think there's same kinds of arguments for a lot of the trans communities, which has suddenly grown from micro percentages, suddenly like half of the children in, in some of these high schools in, in our areas are all claiming to be some one kind of trans, not half, but like tremendous numbers. A lot of these things are social phenomena. They're not psychological per se individual. They're, they're collective phenomena. And the way that you way, way that you need to break them is to end up with voices breaking through. And those voices have to be insistent and incessant. So at the free expression group, uh, freex.group, uh, our research, we have, our book came out yesterday, the first sort of product of this uh, called Expressly Human, Decoding the Language of Emotion, uh, which is really about the under, the, sort of the foundations of how free expression evolved to work amongst humans. And it involves emotional expressions, but also involves just the way that we talk all the time. And even in language, which is a real, relatively recent invention, cultural invention, is still along the same kinds of emotional channels. We may be speaking in words, but we're still doing the same kinds of compromise slash negotiation um, uh, communication systems that emotional expressions evolved uh, to it. So I may be flat in the face. I don't have to be emotional in my intonation and my voice, but even so, most of the conversations that we do on Twitter and so forth are still fundamentally the same kinds of things as emotional expressions, trying to convince others. So 
that book is about understanding the foundations of emotion of 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 ex how humans evolve to express one another and how that works at the network level. And more generally, our institute is really devoted to research to both understanding how narratives are formed amongst these things, how they are misformed when things don't go well, why narratives are so hard to reverse or to, to, to roll back. And they have many formal mathematical proper, pro properties akin to blockchain, which is why uh, blockchain is good because it's really hard to roll back. Uh, if I spent Bitcoin on you, I can't then claim not to have done so because it's in the blockchain, it's just decentralized and, and uh, it's something that can't be uh, rolled back. And it, it turns out that narratives uh, have a very similar property and they need to have that property because if I have had an argument with you, uh, later I could say, no, I didn't totally get humiliated. It was, it was Johnny that got totally humiliated and then, but. It's already been decentralized by virtue of gossip in the social community that no, Mark lost reputation, Johnny gained reputation. And the way that something like proof of work, it's one of the ways that keeps it unalterable, has similar kinds of properties when gossipers come up with a good story that explains the week's events. It's really hard to come up with a good explanatory story, really easy to verify. That's the key to how proof of work works. And it's and, and also proof of stake is another thing. People with higher reputations are the people that you're going to be more likely to accept their uh, explanations for the, you know, add addition to the narrative of what happened this week. So that's a very similar kind of thing to proof of stake. Some of the same kinds of properties that we have on blockchain that makes it work in a decentralized way, we already had been doing within social communities because we had to, because there is no centralized location where all of our reputations are written down on some ledger. No, it's just decentralized amongst the heads of those in the community. So anyway, that's just sort of a glimpse into the way that a theorist starts thinking about social communities and free expression and trying to understand and understand them in such a way that we can understand why they're so hard to unravel. So when someone's part of that narrative and it's in their head, it's really hard to break out of it. So now that we get that, mathematical extent, are there dissimilarities, disanalogies such that we can, you know, leverage that to, you know, to help break, break out of that. Yeah. So, you know, without deep theor theoretical expertise, of course, one of the worst things that you can do is have centralized censorship, which prevents that group thinking community from hearing any other voices. It only just encourages the group thinking. That's what we see now is uh, not just centralized fact checkers uh, within private companies, uh, but also federal government coordinating with them, which is the worst thing that you can do. Uh, to break these sorts of things, uh, you need to break them out of their groupthink. Uh, otherwise, the the sickness, which is not really at their individual brain's level, their individual brain is fine. The reason we call collective hysteria collective hysteria is that it's a sickness at the network level, not at the individual level. So you really have to um, fix them individually by mucking with the nature of the network and pulling them into your own network or breaking up their network, uh, uh, getting your messages into their network so they're not insulated. Yeah. So I guess that, um, that speaks to why you're spending so much time trying to fight against uh, censorship then, because you obviously see the, the censorship aspect as being, um, somewhat of a kind of hurdle, um, in the effort to kind of break down the, the hysteria, right? Yeah, it's, it's, the intuitions of regular people are often uh, about how to help a situation are often exactly the wrong intuition. So a lot of perfectly nice people, their first intuition is, well, 
there are people who are saying wrong things. So we should just have the federal government uh, only allow people to say true things, right? That sounds like a really nice thing. Um, but there's a level of naivety that you could say is there, but I think there's still this, this notion, well, misinformation, we shouldn't just, we shouldn't allow people to do misinformation, but it's completely misunderstands the nature of reality. The nature of reality is that every debate has at least one person who's wrong. Often both people are wrong. Uh, and the way that we find the truth is, is through that messy, ugly debating or people in parallel arguing big, complicated, emotional kind of uh, morass. That's how even science finds its way towards the truth as well as society. Yeah, so that, that's super interesting. And actually everything that you were saying there about the the decentralized um, kind of cryptocurrencies and how they have these these parallels to um, human nature and, and the dissemination of information, et cetera, and, and truth itself. This was actually something that was on my list of things to ask you, but I, I thought that it was kind of such a big topic um, that it almost justified its own conversation. And similarly with what you were discussing there in terms of the um, censorship and how that um, affects society. I feel like these are conversations of their own that we could we could probably riff on for, for a good two hours, um, but we have to wrap this up at some point. So before we do, I just want to give you the opportunity to kind of um, talk about the projects that you have. Well, I guess you've got the, the free expression group and also the, the new book coming out. So if you wouldn't mind just uh, telling my listeners about those those things. Yeah, so I mean, uh, the free expression group is, is in some sense, my reaction, rather than moving to some random research direction, I tend to move from one research area to completely different research areas, because I've more of a grand unifying kind of theorist. And once I've made some discovery that I'm proud of in a field, the odds of me getting something that's equally cool in that field is effectively zero. So I've got to be free to move on to other fields. This, this time, though, um, it seems like I was already poised we were already poised, Tim Barber and I, to move into understanding at these sort of more global level, at the holistic network level, understanding these kinds of principles that can explain or cure uh, collective hysterias and free expression, how it functions uh, in the interaction, both individually at the psychological human, one individual at the, at the level of the whole. So the free expression group is really devoted to that. And as part of its efforts, there's writings that occur there, occur there the science moment, my science moment video series at YouTube, which is disproportionately about those very topics. Our book, which just came out yesterday called Expressly Human, uh, Decoding the Language of Emotion. And it's, it's, it's really about uh, the origins of expression itself amongst social animals. And generally you can find me on Twitter, uh, which is gonna be difficult because they, you know, uh, uh, they uh, censor me, but also uh, a lot of my, I would recommend following me at Mark Changizi, just my name, last name, uh, .substack.com. Uh, that's someplace where I'm not censored and uh, almost all the stuff that really matters finds its way uh, daily um, there. Well, you've been really, really generous uh, with your time. I hope we get the opportunity to discuss some of these other areas we didn't delve into too much in the future. But yeah, in the meantime, keep up what you're doing and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks so much for coming on. Great to be here.